We are starting, this is the first uh, real sermon in our new sermon series, going through First and Second Samuel. But before we talk about First and Second Samuel, there's few things that Hollywood loves more than a franchise reboot. There's a lack of imagination in Hollywood to begin with, but since it's all about the money, they're eager to churn out material that already has a built-in fan base. I looked it up. Of the top 50 highest grossing movies of all time, 39 out of 50 are sequels or spin-offs from existing franchises. 39 out of 50. While another six are remakes of previous films that had been made once already. Like Disney's doing this new thing where they do live action movies of movies they've already released. And I think five of the top 50 movies are those, just rehashing of movies they've already made. That means only five of the 50 top grossing movies of all time are original material. So yeah... Hollywood loves a sequel, a spin-off, a reboot, because audiences love sequels, spin-offs, and reboots. And I'm not immune to it either. Several of my favorite movies are on that list as sequels and spin-offs. One of those movies that I, I happen to really enjoy um, currently occupies slot number 28 on the highest grossing movies of all time, and that's Skyfall. Uh, it was a James Bond movie released in 2012. Skyfall was the 24th James Bond movie released since 1962 when Dr. No first came out. And it's the third of the Bond movies to feature actor Daniel Craig as the iconic spy you see behind me. Now, when you mention James Bond, most people immediately think of, of Sean Connery, the first film Bond and the one that made Bond so iconic. Shaken, not stirred, if you will. Sorry, it's terrible impression. <laughs> Um, maybe you're a Timothy Dalton Bond fan, maybe you're a Roger Moore Bond fan. I haven't seen most of those movies, but I do have a definite preference for the Daniel Craig portrayal of 007. Um, but really, while, while I quite enjoy Daniel Craig as an actor, the reason I like the Daniel Craig Bond movies isn't because that he is Bond. The reason I like the Daniel Craig Bond movies is because how they reboot, rebooted the entire franchise around him. Hollywood loves a reboot, but Hollywood really loves a gritty reimagining, a gritty reboot. And that's exactly what happened with Daniel Craig's first Bond movie, Casino Royale. Prior to Casino Royale, James Bond was played by Pierce Brosnan for four films. The Pierce Brosnan Bond films got more and more ridiculous with each successive entry. Villains got more and more cartoonish. Action sequences got more and more over the top. Love interests got more and more stereotypical. Dialogue got more and more poorly written until the entire franchise became a joke by 2002's Die Another Day. They were bad movies with bad plots, bad special effects, bad action, bad writing, bad characters. They were preposterously overblown and unwatchably cheesy. These were the Bond films that I grew up watching. And they appealed to exactly my age group, preteen boys. Bond needed to grow up. And with Casino Royale... That's exactly what happened. The villains and love interests were fleshed out with greater character and, and were developed more fully. The action was realistic, less flashy, and more gritty. The writing was tense and, and, and tight, and Bond himself, as the protagonist, was more conflicted and humanized, making audiences more invested in his story. As a reboot, it continues to be a thorough success as the newest Daniel Craig movie will be released in just a few weeks to a rabid fan base. But still, the reboot was a tremendous risk. Daniel Craig, this guy here, was a relative unknown when Casino Royale was released, and many doubted his ability to take over such a massive franchise and such an iconic character. 
Would audiences respond positively to this new direction for the beloved British spy, or would they reject it, longing instead for the ridiculous mess that they had been consuming previously? Was this new hero able to shoulder the weight of this new direction? Well, let's rewind uh, 3,000 years of history and find the nation of Israel in a similar position as Daniel Craig's bond. For several centuries, Israel was a disjointed, ragtag collective of various tribes that fought cruelly with one another and who were directionless and leaderless when it came to religious and moral guidance. God's people were sheep without shepherds, adrift in a sea of their own viciousness, their own selfishness, and their own idolatry. Oh, sure, occasionally God would raise up a hero to deliver Israel from her enemies and send them back to repentance and faithfulness. These were the judges, people like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Jephthah. But Israel would just fall right back into her wayward ways in short order, and the cycle would continue for centuries. Israel was in her Pierce Brosnan era. Ignorance, violence, and decadence would repeat itself ad nauseum. Even the priesthood, who were supposed to function as the de facto leaders of Israel, had grown corrupt and unrighteousness, or corrupt and unrighteous. By the time we meet the priesthood, in the next chapter, in fact, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phineas, they had become hopelessly inept, hopelessly corrupt. In short, around 1100 BC, God's children were in serious need of a franchise reboot. Enter our unheralded and unknown hero. It's not Daniel Craig. Rather, it's a barren and depressed woman named Hannah. She's the first hero we meet in the crucial turning point represented by the books of Samuel. An unlikely hero if ever there was one. But we'll see today that by rebooting Hannah's own prospects for joy and purpose and reason for praise, God would also actively reboot the joy, purpose, and praise of his entire wayward people, the entire nation of Israel, who would soon form a mighty empire. Like Hannah herself, Israel would be taken from barrenness to new hope under the sovereign guidance of Almighty God, and he'd do so with the previously unknown, unheralded hero. So let's read the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, and I'll stop and flesh out a few details as we go along. So we're going to start with the first eight verses. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two aforementioned sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? We'll pause there. Here we have the central issue at the start of the narrative, and that's Hannah's barrenness. Elkanah was a well-respected and well-regarded member of Israel's aristocracy. He was pretty high up, as revealed by the detailed description of his ancestry in verse 1. These names don't mean anything to us today, but when they were written, 
Elkanah, son of Zuf, son of Tohu? Are you kidding me? This is an important dude. doesn't mean as much to us now, but the reason they describe it in such detail is to say he's an important guy. His forefathers had been the caretakers of the Ark of the Covenant, a sacred golden box containing especially holy artifacts, which was representative of God's holy presence with his people. The Ark will feature prominently in coming chapters. It's a big deal and is part of Elkanah's heritage. But Elkanah is not only noble by birth, but he's also displayed as being noble in character. He goes over and above in his offerings, willingly attending every festival at the tabernacle that he can and faithfully bringing his family along with him. He would lovingly provide for every member of his family equally and most tellingly, he cared deeply for his barren wife, Hannah. This was not always the case for women in Hannah's position in ancient Israel. Unfortunately, in ancient Israel, a woman's worth was directly tied to her ability to have children and preferably male heirs. An inability to have children represented an inability to serve a purpose at all in the misogynistic world of the ancient Middle East. Clearly, this is not how a woman's worth should ever be determined by her ability or her willingness to have children. But for Hannah, in that society, being married to a man and being unable to provide him with an heir was a devastating blow. In fact, culturally speaking, that's probably the reason for Elkanah's polygamy, sort of like Abraham and Sarah, Sarah couldn't conceive, so they welcome Hagar into the fold. That's probably what's happening here. He probably married Penina for the purpose of childbearing. For Elkanah, whose ancestry is excellent, the past is sparkling and spotless, but his future is as barren as his wife's womb without the hope for a descendant. But Elkanah doesn't treat Hannah harshly or unfavorably because of her barrenness. Quite the opposite, in fact. He lovingly cares for her, supports her, uplifts her, encourages her. He gives her a double portion of the meat because he loves her and feels her pain. He has compassion on her and her suffering. He tries to mitigate her suffering by claiming, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Which is at once sweet and also a totally male thing to say. Hey babe, chill out, you got me and I'm mad enough for two women. But clearly, Elkanah loves Hannah unconditionally, sympathizing for her barrenness and having compassion on her in her heartache. Remember that. Remember that last sentence, because I'll come back to that. Consider Hannah's heartache. Not only does she wrestle with internal doubts about her self-worth and her purpose, but she also has external pressures that heighten her pain. Her rival counterpart wife, Penina, makes her life miserable, rubbing the reality of her empty womb in her face at every opportunity. It all combines to give one of the clearest portraits of clinical depression anywhere in scripture. Hannah closes herself off, she withdraws, she weeps, she refuses to eat. I've seen depression in effect, and that is this. She is a deeply, deeply depressed woman. The weight of hopelessness and purposelessness is crushing, and Hannah feels that crush intensely. She is a desperate woman. Her will is as empty as her womb. Her direction is as lost as her nation. Except, not exactly. Her will is not fully spent. It's just intensely focused. And her direction is not lost. In fact, her faith takes her in a very specific direction, towards Shiloh, the resting place of God's house, the tabernacle. At her most hopeless, she knows where to find her last remaining hope. And that's with Yahweh. Let's read verses 9 to 20. 
Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her voice was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Five quick things. Thing number one. I know I've said this to you a billion times, but in scripture, names and the naming process are crucially important. God changes names when the person's character changes dramatically. Uh, From Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Simon to Peter, uh, Saul to Paul. God also sometimes predetermines names when the one being named is highly significant. Centuries before Jesus was born, God said, There will be a child born to you. You will call him Emmanuel, and his name will be Jesus. Um, Well, the naming Jesus thing came to Mary before he was born, but... He predetermines their name, and he does the same thing with John the Baptist, because John is a crucially important figure as well. But most often, the person's name represents some significant aspect of of their identity. So Isaac means laughter, because when Sarah heard she was going to have a child in her old age, she laughed. Um, Israel means wrestles with God, because Jacob literally wrestled with God, and because that would be the identity of the Israelite nation for the rest of their existence. Moses means drawn out because he was literally drawn out of the Nile River as a baby and also because that would be his sacred purpose, to draw the Israelites out of slavery. So the names usually mean something. Names are a big deal in scripture, and that's true of Hannah's child as well. She names him Samuel. The L, whenever you see a name in the Bible that ends with L, like Nathaniel, um, I'm blanking, what? Rachel, yes. Samuel, the L at the name, L is a word for God, Elohim. It means Lord. And so whenever you see L at the name, at the end of the name, you know that that name is invoking God in some way. And the Samu part sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. So Samuel means heard by God. As it says here, she named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And he heard. Samuel means heard by God, more or less. That that's to be a core part of, Israel, of Samuel's identity. He will hear God's voice three times in one memorable childhood event, and he will hear God's will when it comes time to name a king. Heard by God, heard of God. But for now, it's Hannah who is heard by God. Humble, desperate, faithful Hannah, who knew to bring her desires to God and who trusted he would honor them if she turned her desires over to his service. 
her son would hear God, and she herself had been heard by God in her moment of utter despair and brokenness. And by the way, the name Hannah, anybody know what the name Hannah means? It means favor or grace. God would indeed show favor and grace on this devoted servant hero. Number two, God's role in Hannah's story is very striking. He, he's credited with both sides of the equation, the suffering and the salvation. In back-to-back verses, verse 5 and 6, it's explicitly declared that the Lord himself had shut Hannah's womb. He had been the source of her pain and anguish in one sense. And still, still she went to him. He is credited with her barrenness, which leads to her understandable bitterness, but she does not remain in her bitterness. Rather, she literally takes it up to the house of the Lord and turns it over to him. And in response, the same Lord who had shut up her womb is the one who opens her womb up again. It's a powerful reminder that God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. While I'm reluctant to say he's the cause of our pain, in fact, that I, I don't believe that at all, that he's the cause of our pain, but I am quite confident in saying that he is able to take the thing that causes us our greatest pain, our greatest heartache, our greatest depression even, and use it to transform us and transform the people around us for the better. In the case of Hannah, he transforms the direction and, and future not just of Hannah, of one woman and one family, but of an entire nation because of her faithfulness. So we just have to be strong enough and humble enough to offer what we have, our pain, our suffering to him in faith. Whenever you are su- or sorry, Whatever you are suffering through can be used for God's glory if we take it to him as our hero Hannah does. Number three, so number one, The name is a big deal. Number two, God is both sides. He's the one who shuts up her womb and he's the one who opens it. If we take it to him, then he will use all things for his glory. Number three, Hannah is promising to dedicate her miracle child to Yahweh's service under the Nazarite vow. That's that little part where he says, and his hair will never be cut or whatever. That's the Nazarite vow, which was an ancient Hebrew oath, which forbade the the vow taker from drinking wine or any drink of the grape or handling a corpse, or cutting the hair on their face. By the way, until lice hit our household uh, last week, and I had to shave my beard, I was batting a thousand in those categories for the month of February. Touched dead bodies? No, didn't do that. Did I? Did I uh, have? Did I cut my hair? No, I don't need to cut my hair. Did I drink wine? No, I never drink wine. So I was, I was basically a Nazarite at that for the month of February, um, which is pretty exciting. The Nazarite vow is the same oath that Samson had taken. Once he cuts his hair, then then he, is, he loses his strength because he broke the vow. Um, the idea of a Nazarite vow is to commit oneself wholeheartedly to the Lord's service for the duration of the vow. Here it serves as foreshadowing. It points to the dedicated service that Samuel will one day embrace once he's, you know, eventually born and raised. Um, and by the way, at this point in the narrative, there's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee that, that Hannah will have a son at all. But she vows that if I do have a son, he'll, he'll take the Nazarite vow. And that right there is the most striking feature of Hannah's story so far. Other than the accusation of public drunkenness, that's a pretty striking feature of her story. And it's also highly ironic. It's, it's ironic because as corrupt priests, Eli and his sons, they cannot recognize true righteousness. And here they can't either. 
a righteous woman doing righteous thing is accused of doing something evil. Eli and his sons, they're the, the wayward corrupt ones. They're the ones doing evil all the time. They can't recognize what's good. Hannah, who is nobody, does recognize what is good and right when they can't. So that contrast is striking. But the thing that is most impactful about this section of Hannah's heroic story isn't the vow she makes or the accusation made against her. What's striking is her unflinching, unwavering faith. And that faith is item number four. Not only does Hannah take her suffering to God, not only does she trust him after acknowledging that he's the one who had closed her womb in the first place, not only does she make sacred vows in God's presence, not only does she pray faithfully and fearlessly despite her low social status, not only does she take all of these remarkable steps in faith, but she immediately believes that he hears her. Immediately. Her faith completely transforms her immediately. Check out verses 17 and 18. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. How's that for immediate? Eli gives her what sounds like a perfunctory response. Sure, go in peace. I hope God gives you what you asked for. Whatever. Get out of here. He, he doesn't even ask for details about her anguish. That's how much he doesn't care. She's saying, I'm anguished in grief. He doesn't say, oh, what's the matter, my, dar- my darling, my daughter? He just says, okay, well, I hope God gives you what you want. Get out of here, you hysterical crying woman, which is also very male. She's crying. I want to get out of this situation as soon as possible. But Hannah, why are you laughing? Have I done that? (laughs) But Hannah clings faithfully to that priestly word of support, even if it sounds a bit dismissive. And in that very moment, she feels the weight of her depression lifted off her, which is always a miracle. She eats some food and her face reflects her new hopeful perspective. Um, What's amazing about this isn't that she believes God has heard her request. What's amazing is that her faith is so thorough and so immediately transformative. She hasn't even gotten back in bed with Elkanah yet to, you know, consummate the promise. That happens in the next verse. She hasn't even consummated the promise and she's already entirely reshaped by her faith. I can see how she might be tentative. Wait until the sex happens and then wait until she misses her next period and then wait until the baby bump shows and then wait until she feels the baby's first kick and then hedge your bets a little more and wait until he's delivered safely. That's what I'd be like. Well, this is all very encouraging, but you can't be sure until you're sure. That's what I would be like. I'm a little pessimistic like that, although I'd probably tell you I'm just being realistic. But there's no such pessimism from our hero, Hannah. She immediately trusts that God has heard her and will grant her the the request that she has made. She showed appropriate humility. She showed appropriate honesty and appropriate desire for God's glory. Why wouldn't a good father want to honor that kind of loving, loving faith from his child, Hannah? Even if she's someone that nobody else in society values simply because of her gender, why wouldn't a good father hear her and want the best for her? Hannah doesn't hedge her bets when it comes to faith. She jumps in joyfully. She walks on the water. She splits the sea. She knows she is heard by God, and that trust has immediate effects on every aspect of her being. Wouldn't it be amazing to have that kind of faith when it comes to pursuing our desires in conjunction with God's will? Sure it would be. And it can be. Why can't it be? If if Hannah can have that kind of immediate faith and trust, why can't we? In fact, that kind of faith does feel amazing. We can model Hannah's faith 
We can ask for what the Lord puts on our heart with humility and a desire for him to be glorified. And we can trust he will hear us. Why? Because he's the God who remembers. That's the fifth point from this passage I want to make. But just before I do, Angie and I went through something very much like this just recently with Kennedy. And I shared this last week where the ups and the downs of maybe she'll stay with us and no, there's no way. And then, oh, maybe there's a way. And at no point did we feel like we needed to give up and, and stop fighting for Kennedy. And the result was the meeting was it went unbelievably smooth. And it, I mean, the road after has been bumpy and, and it's a big transition and we knew it would be. But this happened. We, we trusted that God would make a way. We never gave up. And she's here. And it, it's incredible. It's a, it's a testament to the God who hears us, the God who remembers. So that's the fifth thing, the God who remembers. So number five, the Lord remembers Hannah in verse 19, just as she had asked him to back in verse 11. Let's read that. It says, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. If you will only remember and not forget. And in verse 19, it says, um, Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. She asked him to remember and he remembers. This is a very common phrase in the Old Testament used when God acts on behalf of his faithful servants. Um, it's very common. But it has certain connotations. If God can remember his servants, does that mean he occasionally forgets about them too? No. Although it's understandable to think that. Sometimes it feels like God forgets about us, leaving us to our own devices twisted in the darkness of a broken world. I'm sure you felt that too, but that is never the case. When God remembers, it doesn't mean that he forgot, as that's impossible for Almighty God. It's merely a figure of speech that illustrates his faithfulness to the promises he makes. Most famously, God remembers the Hebrew people trapped in slavery in Egypt and delivers them. Does this mean God needed a memory refresher, like the Israelites were lost keys that he found under the couch cushions along the Nile River? No. It just means that it was time for God to act on promises that he had not yet fulfilled. It didn't mean he forgot, it's that it's time to act. In Hannah's case, he would act on promises not even yet made. Hannah says, Lord, please remember, don't forget. God doesn't say, okay, Hannah, you got it. Well, he kind of does through Eli. But immediately, she, she acts on the promises as, as if they're going to happen because they are happening. He is a God who remembers. She asked him to remember her, but he had always had her in her his heart. In fact, it seems more like she needed to remember him than him needing to remember her. And when he does act on his memory and carry out his promises, the result is always transformative for his people. As when God remembered his promise to Abraham and gave Abraham Isaac as his, his heir, that transformed everything about our faith, even today. Or when God remembered his people in slavery and sent someone to free them. That transformed the people of God forever. Or when God remembered his promised Emmanuel and several centuries later sent Christ to completely alter history forever and welcome all people into salvation. That changed everything for the people of God. And in each of those instances, it's God remembering. And the same is true here. 
God isn't just remembering Hannah. He's remembering all of his people, languishing in evil and idolatry and waywardness in the time of the judges. As with Abraham and the Exodus and Emmanuel, God is about to completely reboot his people who follow him. And as with Isaac and Moses and Jesus, he's going to accomplish this through the miraculous birth and upbringing of a baby. In all of those stories, God transforms his people. Abraham and Isaac, Moses and, and the Exodus, Jesus, and all of those are miraculous baby instances. It's amazing. God always uses the most helpless, vulnerable, weak, small person there is to transform his people. A baby. And this baby will be named Samuel, heard by God. He will lead Israel in a new direction under the monarchy with God as the supreme king. Through Samuel, God will remember his people. Let's read the last portion and I'll wrap everything up with one last thought. Verses 21 to 28. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, remember he does this regularly. This time, however, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the baby is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and said, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Can you imagine how hard it would be to do what Hannah did? To turn your son over to the care of someone else at the age of two or three, like she does? But she does so willingly. Her barrenness has been turned to hopefulness. God had done that. He had remembered his humble servant and honored her ferocious faith. And so Hannah fulfills her end of the bargain. God had remembered her, so Hannah remembers what she had promised to God. God had brought her joy and purpose and a reason to praise him. And by offering her son to his service, she returns those things back to God. But it's not only her joy and her purpose and her reason to praise that returns. This is the last point that I want to make. Last week, we talked about the stories of the Old Testament having a universal, a national, and an individual message. Big scope, medium scope, small scope. Here, the small scope, the individual message, is small and wonderful. Hannah, who is just one unlikely hero of faith, is heard by God, and her bitter grieving is turned to beautiful praise. That's... That's an individual story that that we can take into our lives. God hears us, small as we are. So the individual lesson for us is that God will remember us too when we turn our sufferings and desires over to him. He will hear us. And if you seek ye first the kingdom of God, as Hannah does, then all these things will be added unto you as well, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Hannah isn't selfish with her desire. She doesn't just want it for herself. She recognizes that she is the recipient of grace, which is her name, and she turns that gift back to God. As one of my commentary authors, Bill Arnold, writes, Having come to God with nothing, she now returns to Shiloh, the house of God, to give back that which means everything. She came with nothing, was given everything, and what does she do with that everything she is given? She returns it right back to God. 
She arrives in depression and desperation, but she leaves with hope and joy. And then amazingly, she returns the source of that hope and joy back to God himself. And do you know what's particularly amazing about her individual act of humility and desperation and gratefulness? She's just one small woman, one individual act of tremendous faith. But what's amazing is that the results of that individual act of faith were national, even universal. Just as Hannah had been stuck in a period of grief that left her lost and unhealthy and oppressed, so too was the nation of Israel feeling those same things at that moment in history. They were lost. They were unhealthy. They were oppressed. And just as God heard Hannah's cry for joy and purpose and a return to praise, so too was he hearing Israel's cry for a return to joy and purpose and worship of their God. Remember when I said that it was astounding how Elkanah loved Hannah unconditionally despite her barrenness? The same is true of God towards his bride, Israel. They were spiritually lifeless and religiously cold. Their righteousness was as empty and their morality as hostile as Hannah's womb. But does God spurn them altogether? Does he turn his back on them and give his love to their rivals? For Hannah, it's Penina. For Israel, it's the the Philistines. Does he turn his back on them and give his love to someone else? No. Emphatically, no. He remembers Hannah in her desperation, and he will remember Israel in her desperation as well. He will use this miracle child, Samuel, to deliver to them a king who will unite them, legitimize them, protect them, and model for them the manner of selfless allegiance to his will. And that'll be David. The birth of Samuel doesn't just signal the end of Hannah's barrenness, it signals the end of Israel's barren faithlessness as well. And he will use a faithful servant's brokenness, Hannah's brokenness, to accomplish this. Her greatest weakness becomes a powerful testimony of God's endless strength. And it is the entire nation of Israel who reaps the rewards of her small, desperate act of faith. Israel needed a reboot. Like the Bond movies, the franchise had grown almost comically violent and idolatrous and self-destructive. We will soon meet the mighty men who will usher in this crucial royal reboot. Samuel, to a lesser extent Saul, to a greater extent David. We'll soon meet these mighty, mighty men. But before we meet those mighty men, our attention is drawn to a humble, unsuspecting woman with a need that mirrors Israel's national need for hope to be born out of barrenness. Before we get to those mighty men, take a second and look at this small but mighty woman. I love that. Like Daniel Craig, Hannah was unknown. But without Hannah, there's no Samuel. Without Samuel, there's no David. Without David, there's no Jesus Christ. The ultimate source of grace, life, and truth, Jesus, came through the twisted, convoluted, crazy story of God working with a depressed woman who grasped desperately for that same grace and truth and life. Perhaps you feel like Hannah or Israel. Perhaps you're feeling spiritually barren or morally empty. Maybe you're feeling directionless or despairing. There's lots of reasons to feel those ways. If so, Hannah illustrates how God takes our shame and turns it into rejoicing. He takes our weakness and he turns it to strength. He turns hopelessness into a glorious future. And he turns emptiness and barrenness into life and joy if we come to him in faith and turn our desires over for his glory. Even when we feel most shaken, 
not stirred. Sorry. Even when we feel most shaken, he remembers us and great things are born. Um, a few years ago, I used to write songs with my friends. Uh, most of them are ridiculous. But I wrote one that I still actually really like. And it talks of four or five different stories in scripture where God calls people and they respond with, here I am. It's called Here I Am. And one of them is this one about Hannah. And the first stanza goes like this. A hopeless, broken mother's prayer. Faith invites the scorn of priests. Heard of God, devoted with care, to rebuild holiness where it ceased. We'll talk about the next, the next stanza is the story we'll look at next week or the week after. But that's the message here. A small, broken, desperate, even depressed woman who goes to God with her brokenness, turns it over to him, and immediately is transformed because he hears her. And she trusts that he hears her. And because of that, hope is born out of barrenness. I'm not sure what barrenness or, or pain or suffering or whatever that you're feeling like, Hannah, but the promise of 1 Samuel 1 is if you take it to him, he will turn that barrenness to hope and life and rejoicing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you for Hannah, our hero, the first hero in this sermon series. And what a stage she sets for us. Her um, reckless, her fearless, her beautiful faith that you can, can bring good out of bad, that you can bring hope out of barrenness, that you can bring life out of emptiness. I pray that we would have that same kind of faith, that we would trust you in our darkest and weakest and smallest moments because you use small, broken people like Hannah, like us. Help us to trust in you. And thank you for all the ways that you already take our faith and, and create life out of it, that you take our emptiness and our brokenness and, and bring hope and joy to the world around us. We praise you for all the ways we see and don't see you acting in that way. But I pray that we would be willful and mindful to take our brokenness to you. You see small people like us. You redeem and uplift small people like us. We praise you for that. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Our attention is drawn to a humble, unsuspecting woman with a need that mirrors Israel's national need for hope to be born out of barrenness. Here we have... Sorry. Ah! Sorry, taking this cough candy was a bad idea right before I started.